All right, thank you guys. Good seeing you this morning. I want to uh, join Josh in extending to you a word of welcome, especially if you're our guest this morning, whether uh, here in person or you're watching us online, we want to welcome you. We're grateful that you're a part of our worship experience, and we would love to come alongside you as uh, you're embarking upon this uh, journey of faith and uh, how we can help you. We want to discern that. So we do hope that you will text FL Respond uh, to that number that uh, we provide for you, 833 713475. Uh, you may have a question about what it means to be a follower of Christ, or maybe you already are a follower of Christ, but uh, you need to be plugged in, be part of a, uh, a church body, a community of faith, and we'd just love to be able to converse with you about that uh, and to help you in that process. We are in the midst of a verse-by-verse exposition of the book of James, and uh, we have just completed the largest section of that uh, book, uh, what began in chapter 3 and verse 1, and uh, going through uh, chapter 4, where we're picking up this this uh, morning, it ended in verse 12. So a rather extensive section about teachers and the proper use of the tongue uh, in a way that is constructive, that edifies, as opposed to uh, tearing down and, and destructing. Uh, but today, James, uh, as he does in his style of writing, it's a very abrupt shift from topics. And so this morning, I want to address the, biz- the business, or hyphenate that, the busyness of living. And we're going to look in particular at verses 13 through 17. In his book, Perennial Seller, Arthur Ryan Holiday tells about a conversation that took place between Judd Apatow, he's a Hollywood producer and director, between Judd Apatow and actor and entertainer Steve Martin. And it was about, their conversation was about uh, the trajectory of creative work once it's Released, And they were talking about uh, the release of movies. And uh, they observed that there's really three criteria for evaluating and judging a movie whether or not it is good. Uh, first is its release date. When it gets released, was it a hit? That's the first question. Secondly, you have to look at that movie five years later. Is it still around? The, the big test comes 10 to 15 years after that movie is released. Is the movie still around? Are people still watching it? Does it have an afterlife? Now, I thought that was an interesting way for two movie industry moguls to talk about evaluating a creative work like a movie. Does it have an afterlife? Normally, we would associate that with the language of of faith. And I'm going to take some liberties this morning, borrowing from that opening illustration. If we, if, we were allow, if we were to allow ourselves to see life as being a creative work, which it really is, the journey of faith, the life of faith, we are a work in progress. It's not about what we were very much in Christ Jesus. Life is about what we are becoming. It is a creative work that God, through the power of his spirit, the resurrected Christ, is accomplishing in us. So if we allow ourselves that latitude of understanding our life being a creative work, what is, the traje- what is the trajectory of the life you're living? Is the life you're living now that you're pouring into, every one of us are about the busyness, the business of living. 
And that means every day we wake up, our feet hit the ground, and we pour into the day. We pour into this business of living the very best of who we are, the very best of what we have. There is something in life that gets that. The very best of who I am, the very best of what I have, my, my time, my energy, and resources. And when I think about that, the business that I'm living, this creative work that is my life, What's its afterlife? What's the trajectory of my life? If I continue on the path that I'm on, does it have an afterlife? Or does it just end when I'm dead and gone? We see some examples of this in Scripture. If your life right now, say you're, say you're a popular person. You've been popular all of your life. And a lot of times when, when you have popularity, your, your objective and your decision-making is built around remaining popular. You don't want to lose that. You appreciate, you've, you've benefited from the perks of being a popular personality. And so you become a decision-maker so that you don't lose your popularity. You want to be liked by everyone. Now, that, that's not a healthy trajectory in life. That doesn't have a good afterlife. Take, for instance, the, the 12 spies. In Numbers chapter 13, the Lord told Moses, you, 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 you find 12 individuals, one from each tribe. Let the tribes pick their leader and let them be the spies to go in to spy out the promised land. If you were to go back, I would challenge anyone in this room this morning, if you go back and you look at that catalog of names, those 12 names in Numbers chapter 13, I can tell you the only names you will recognize are Joshua and Caleb. The others are lost in time and eternity. No one talks about them. You know why? They were worried about being popular. See, those 10, they agreed with the masses. They didn't want to go into the promised land. We don't stand a chance. Uh, they're bigger than we are. We're, we're too small. We're too slow. They'll defeat us. They'll annihilate us. And so to accommodate the crowds, they joined in with the voice of the masses and said, you know, let's just go back. But Joshua and Caleb, the two other spies, they saw it from another perspective. Instead of seeing obstacles, they saw opportunity. And they said, no, if God is for us, who can be against us? And so they stood against the crowd, which wasn't popular. Who do we remember to this day? Joshua and Caleb. All the others are forgotten. Or maybe you're someone in life, you're at a station in life where you realize you've had, op you've had every opportunity in life to take seriously your faith, the life you're building, and the opportunity to use your life in a way that, that has an impact and influence on the lives of other people. You had, have had every opportunity in life. But for whatever reason, you have not seized them. You have not taken advantage of those opportunities. You keep putting it off, keep delaying. Now, what is the trajectory of that kind of life? It doesn't have a good afterlife. I think of someone like King Saul in the Old Testament. I think of someone like Judas in the New Testament. Individuals that had every opportunity that saw firsthand the handiwork of how God was working in the lives of humanity. And they're remembered. They're just not remembered well. Think about other characters in the Bible. I think most of us would more readily identify with some of the most obscure characters, and, and especially, I'm thinking especially of the Gospels. 
I'm talking about obscure individuals that had no platform, no power, no popularity, no position in life. They were marginalized. They were the outcast of society. But because they had opportunity to interact and to encounter Jesus, it changed the trajectory of their lives. I'm thinking about someone like the woman at the well, the woman with the issue of blood, the Samaritan, the leper, the centurion. Uh, the one that was lame, the one that was blind. All of these had this, all of these obscure individuals had this encounter with Jesus and it changed the trajectory of their lives. And here we are 2,000 years later. Their names and their stories are preserved in sacred text. They are the centerpiece of preaching and teaching 2,000 years later. That's a good trajectory. That's a good afterlife. They're not unlike over in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 4. Those are not unlike Abel, who, is, who the, Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews says that though he is dead, remember Abel had the more superior sacrifice, because even though he is dead, he still speaks today. Well, what James is doing this morning, he's talking about the business of living. And he's addressing directly merchants businessmen. And as we hear the things that, that James is saying to them, I want us each one to, to embrace this and accept this as a challenge to examine the trajectory of our lives. The trajectory that you are currently on in your life, does it, does it have a good afterlife? Because what James is going to say to those businessmen are the very things that we need to hear in our life. Because it's about a perspective on life, an approach to life. Now, the first thing James does is talk about the arrogance of life. Notice in verse 13, he says, come now, you who say, and he's, he's already familiar with some in that, in that messianic community that, that he's already hearing these kind of things. Come now, you who say, tomorrow, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, and engage in business and make a profit. Now, the arrogance of that, notice in, if you go down to verse 16, he says, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Now, he's, he's talking about the arrogance of looking into a future that has no regard for God's providence. Now, he does this in an interesting way. And you go back to verse 13. He uses four verbs here when we see, and he uses it to, to, to showcase their initiative that they're taking. But he puts each one of these four verbs in the future tense. They're looking ahead. Notice what he says here again in verse 13, the four verbs. First of all, we will go. We will go to such and such a city. We will spend a year there. We will engage in business. We will make a profit, which is the bottom line in their mindset. So what we see is the sin of hubris. There's an arrogance about their statement. It's a falsehood to think that they somehow control the future that is ahead. Uh, they've neglected the wisdom of the wisdom writer who said in Proverbs 19:21, the human mind may devise plans, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will be established. Even their favorite prophet, Jeremiah, 
would say this, I know, O Lord, that the way of human beings is not in their control, that mortals, as they walk about, cannot direct their steps. Jeremiah 10, 23. What James sees in the life of that messianic community among those who are, who are arrogantly making these plans for the future, he's seeing an orientation and a perspective towards life. Even though they are confessing believers, they have no regard apparently for the providential purposes of God. It's not, like, it's not unlike the, the antagonist or really the protagonist in, in Percer, Percy Walker's uh, book, The Movie Goer. There's a statement there uh, within, that, with that, within that book where he said, the comment is made that they are 100% humanist. That is secular without God. The people are 100% humanist, but 98% of them believe in God. Now, that's a perspective that says the very same thing James is saying. You pretend to believe in God, you believe in the providential purposes of God, and yet the life you're living has no regard, no reverence for the things of God. You know, when you get to a certain stage in life and have enough life experience, you come to a point where you make very few declarative statements, especially about, about the future. I've had this happen to me a couple of times where I've just quit saying it. I've quit making declarative statements about what I would never do. When I, was gra- when, I, when I graduated from the seminary, when I went to seminary in 1984, I had already served on a church staff for, for two years. And, I had a, and the plan always was for me to go off to the seminary and then come back to that church that, that I was serving, that I had served previously and to serve in another position. When I get up to graduation in 1987, part of, uh, part of the required process of graduating, you have to go to the seminary's placement office, fill out all their paperwork and, and everything, and, they, and they're supposedly trying to help you to find a church to serve, to put you in front of a church that will eventually call you. Well, one of the forms they had was, uh, it was titled Geographical Preference. Well, when the lady slid that across the table to me and said, you need to, uh, well, I said, well, what's this? She said, well, we need to know where you're willing to serve. And I said, you know, it's funny. I've never even thought about that. I said, you know, I've, I've just always imagined that I, would, that I would just serve churches in Texas. I never thought about leaving Texas. I'm, I'm Texas. I mean, I'm a Texan, native born, you know, and I just never imagined leaving Texas. And she said, well, I have to put something down here on this form. So in jest, I said to her, I tell you what, just mark down on there that I'll go anywhere except Africa or Alabama. (laughs) In six weeks, I was in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. There's another place in my ministry where I said to Patty, I will never live there. Within a year, I was a pastor there. I learned not in the arrogance of life to make declarative statements about what I will do or what I would never do. James perceives an arrogance about life in many. James also talks about the uncertainty of life. Notice that first clause 
in verse 14. He says, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. James is kind of scratching his head, tomorrow? I mean, uh, how can you be certain that there's even going to be a tomorrow? Tomorrow is uncertain. Again, the wisdom writer would say in Proverbs 27, 1, do not boast about tomorrow for you do not know what a day may bring. Jesus would take that and say essentially the same thing in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 34. James' point is the only thing you can be certain about, the only thing any of us can be certain about is right now. It's today. Listen, church, there there are no greater two vast wastelands. The two greatest vast wastelands are yesterday and tomorrow. You can do absolutely nothing about tomorrow. It is done. It's gone. And I'm talking about whether it's your failures or your successes in life. It's done. It's over. And so you you, you have to recognize you have no control over tomorrow. All I have is, is today. And so instead of uh, allowing the regrets or the successes of yesterday or, or the worries about tomorrow, instead of allowing the, these two vast wastelands to, to, to suck up my energy and my life that, that is necessary, my energy, my physical energy, my mental energy, instead of putting it in these two areas, I need to put it into the day. This is the only day that I have. That's the point that, that James is making. Life, life's just uncertain. You know, Paul even had this experience. If, if you were to go to the book of Acts, chapter 16, Paul is planning out his, his second missionary journey. And his, what he anticipates doing is going back and visiting all the churches that he established in, in, his, in his first trip, just to go back and give them some, some encouragement. But there's a couple of times if not three times there in, in the book of Acts, where the statement is made as he was preparing to go into one of his, his made plans, his ready-made plans. And listen, there's nothing wrong with planning. Listen, I've got retirement accounts. I've got, I, I, I've got life insurance. Yeah, we have to plan for tomorrow. That's not the point. But wisdom is we know things can change. And that was the case for Paul in Acts chapter 16, where it says, even though he had planned to go to this one place, Paul says, I was forbidden by the Holy Spirit. And then another place Paul desired to go, it said the Spirit did not allow them. But what happened in each one of those occasions, even though Paul in his wisdom sat down and mapped out a course, a a plan for where they were going to go, they were open to what God was doing. And because the Holy Spirit would not allow them, because the Holy Spirit forbade them to go into these two or three different places, they were redirected into places where a greater kingdom work was done and accomplished. So James wants us to be aware about the uncertainty of life, how things change in just a moment, things you never anticipate. And how do you respond to that adversity? See, if you have no sense of providence about you, when your plans are thwarted, when something, when a wrench is thrown into the plans, if you have no sense of providence or reverence about life, that just, that just disrupts everything. But someone who recognizes that the Lord is in control 
It's always a what's next attitude. It's a let's wait and see attitude. There is always something on the other side of this adversity that God has accomplished. We can never presume upon life. It's just uncertain. You've got to be prepared. Russell Smith was a paratrooper, 44-year-old Army sergeant, had a wife during the Persian Gulf War, had a wife and four daughters at home. He wrote them every day. And at some point in every letter, he wrote these words, don't worry about me, I'll make it home. Russell Smith was killed in the Persian Gulf War, never got home to his wife and four daughters. Life is uncertain. But James also talks about the brevity of life. Notice there as verse 14 continues. He says, for, for you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. So in other words, uh, life, isn't, life isn't just unpredictable. Life is also short. It's kind of alarming past couple of years, the CDC has, has shown, the data has revealed that life expectancy in the U.S. has declined the past two years, two years in a row in this country. In fact, in this past year, it dropped nearly a full year, life expectancy from 77 to 76 years of age. But you know, even when you live to 76, that life expectancy, even if you make it to 100 years of age, yeah, it's just a drop in the bucket when it comes to time and eternity. And that's what scripture is always trying to do. I mean, simile after simile, metaphor after metaphor, illustration after illustration, verse after verse, it's always trying to tell us about the brevity of life. Even Job, in his wisdom, listen to what Job would write in chapter seven and verse seven. Job said, remember that my life is a mere breath. Then the psalmist would say in Psalm 39, five, behold, you have made my days as, as, like a hand's width and my lifetime is nothing in your sight. Certainly all mankind standing is a mere breath. Again, the psalmist would write in Psalm 144, in verse four, that man is, is like the breath. His days are like a passing shadow. In other words, when it comes to my life and your life, we're like, we're like the morning dew, it's burned off by the midday sun. And James says that, that if we're going to live wisely, and you know, James has redundantly asked for us to, to pray for wisdom, and this is part of praying for wisdom. To understand the brevity, the uncertainty, and the brevity of life. And the reality is there's two perspectives. I mean, when you think about the brevity of life, when, you th when we think that and imagine that we're just one heartbeat away from eternity. I mean, just one heartbeat. That's all it is. One heartbeat between this thin veil between time and eternity. That is either a source of comfort, it is either comforting for you, or it is frightening for you. And whether it's frightening or comforting is determined by the trajectory of your life. We make the mistake, I made the mistake as a young man, thinking I had all the time in the world to get my life right with God. I wasn't raised in church, but I had this sense of haunting 
about middle school, that there was something over me, that there was something over and above me, something I, I didn't, I certainly wouldn't have used the word transcendent back then, I'll use it now, but there was a sense of transcendence that there was something out there over me to which I was supposed to be accountable. And I was haunted by that. And, and instead of pursuing that, I kept, well, I kept thinking, I'll wait till high school, you know, and I'll, I'll explore that more in my life. Then it was, I'm, I'm going to wait till college. And then I was, and then I was into living life, pretty, you know, pretty at-risk behaviors. And, and then all of a sudden, for whatever reason, I just became afraid of dying. I became afraid of death as a 21-year-old young man. And what would be the end game? in my life. Scripture understands the brevity, the uncertainty. That's why salvation and conversations about salvation in Scripture are always about today. Today is the day of salvation. There is no promise of tomorrow. And here's the final thing James ends with. It's the alternative to this life. Thankfully, James doesn't leave us hanging. He gives us an alternative to that life that is arrogant, that fails to recognize the brevity, uncertainty of life. Now then James says, here's your alternative. Instead, in verse 15, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. So for one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it for him, it is sin. Interesting statement there in, in verse 17, what James is saying is that this is really common knowledge for him, to know, for him who knows to do the right thing but does not do it, for him it's sin. James understanding it, this is just common knowledge. Everyone knows this. This is something that every person ought to recognize that we ought to say, that we ought to preface everything by if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Now, James isn't, James isn't trying to solve the mystery between the free will of man and the sovereignty of God. That's not it at all. What he's talking about is orientation. When he says this is what we ought to say, he's talking about our orientation towards life, our attitude and perspective on life, how we view things. Do we really view life with a sense of reverence? Is there really a sense of, of a God who is over us, a God to whom we, we are accountable? That is the attitude that he, he is saying is the alternative to this secular kind of, of lifestyle. It's a life that recognizes the brevity of life, the uncertainty of life, and in humility, it makes its plans with the understanding that God may have other things in store. It's the same attitude of Jesus. We saw it in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, the, the, what we call the Lord's Prayer. Jesus prayed, thy kingdom come. That, that's his prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. What about in the garden? Jesus prayed fervently, Father, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, let your will be done. This kind of spirit and attitude that James is talking about is evident in the life of James as well. When he was writing to the church at Corinth, he made this statement. He said, I will come to you if the Lord wills. 
And in his desire to visit the church at Philippi and the church at Rome, Paul said, I hope to spend time with you if, if the Lord permits. You see, the wise among us, those with wisdom, those that have the wisdom that James says we are to pray for, those that are truly wise, they understand that things can change in a moment, in a heartbeat. I wish he was here to tell us how quickly things can change and to hear his testimony. Ralph Napor was out running one summer morning, pre-dawn run, when all of a sudden he was seized by terrible cramps, cramps he had never had before. Shut him down completely in his running. He was soon walking stiff-legged, and soon he fell over it like he had been shot. Fully immobilized, could not move, laying there in the middle of this country road, and he just knew he was going to die. He knew that some car, if he didn't die from whatever it was he was dealing with, uh, that a car was going to run over him. And he began thinking about his own mortality. After about half an hour, he got to where he could crawl and moved himself to the side of the road. About another half hour, he was able to get up and, and walk home. As he was showering, he was thinking about his life, the end of his life, and how near death seemed to him. After he got out of the shower and got dressed, he drove to the nearest church, nearest his home, and it was First Baptist Church, Ward, Arkansas. Dr. Bill Hilburn was the pastor. Ralph went in, some men introduced him to Bill Hilburn, and Bill sat there and listened over a cup of coffee to Ralph Napor telling his story, what happened that morning. And he asked Dr. Hilburn when he was done telling his story, what would have happened to me if I had died? Dr. Hilburn asked him, he said, Ralph, are you a Christian? He said, are you a follower of Christ? And he said, no, I'm not. He said, well, Ralph, if this is a decision you want to make, I can walk you through this of what it means to be a follower of Christ, the implications of what it is to be a follower of Christ, and it will take care of your concerns. But it will also mean a life that is fuller and richer, having purpose and meaning as well. But your end will be taken care of, provided for. That morning, Ralph Napier committed his life to Christ, came back to church that Sunday night, and was baptized as a new believer, a new follower in Christ Jesus, no longer afraid of death. Jump ahead five days, the Friday evening news, 10 o'clock, announced a terrible, tragic accident outside of Ward, Arkansas, that took the life of Ralph Napor. Who would have ever imagined that his first Sunday in church would be the last Sunday in church. You see, 
you just never know. That's why the question is so urgent. What is the trajectory of your life? Where is it going? Where is it leading? And more importantly, where does it end? What is its afterlife? That's a question only you can answer. Our Father, you have given us all that is necessary to have a life that counts, a life that matters, a life that has a telling end. And Father, my prayer is, is that if there is anyone here this morning, anyone within the sound of my voice that has never committed their life to Christ, made the decision to become a follower of Christ, Father, I pray that this would be their day of salvation because this is the only day and the only time that we have right now. I pray, Lord, that as we go from this place, that, that we would reflect the salvation that is ours. That in a world that is filled with so much despair and hopelessness, that we by our presence might be a light in a world that is so dark. And that, Lord, that your light shining through us might be an attraction to them. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Why don't we stand? It will be dismissed from this blessing, with this blessing that comes from the pen of Paul to the church at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 11, and this will be our departing blessing. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow in love for one another and for all people just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. God bless you. You're dismissed.